Um, we're in John chapter 17, and we'll kind of go back to this question. But um, as we look at John chapter 17, Jesus transitions from the last couple, last supper discourse where he's uh, teaching his disciples into a prayer. He looks up at heaven, and he starts to pray. He prays to God and has this intimate uh, conversation with him. Then he prays for his disciples uh, that are around him, the 12. And then he prays for his future disciples. Jesus, in the written word of God, prays for us, which I think is phenomenal. You know, at first passing when I read this text, I was a little uninspired. And I was thinking, oh, I'm just going to go through this thing in one week and and make it work, you know? And the first commentary I picked up, it was just like gushing over this passage of scriptures. Like, this is the holiest of holy scriptures. One pastor preached 45 consecutive sermons on this one chapter, right? Another pastor wrote a 500-page commentary on this one chapter, and I just repented and <laughs> like maybe I have to read it two more times. I don't know. So, um, but as I got into this text, I just really felt like God, it, it's kind of amazing to hear Jesus pray in a unique way. We have the Lord's Prayer, but really he's exemplifying or modeling prayer for his disciples. In that prayer, he teaches us how to pray, right? If it was his prayer, he wouldn't say, forgive me my debts, because he's, he's never sinned. But in this prayer, we have an intimate two persons of the Trinity speaking to each other. Kind of behind the curtain, what does Jesus and God's conversation look like? And as John just delves into one intimate uh, conversation after another, this might be the closest we get to see the Trinity interact. And so let's say this passage together. John chapter 18, verse 1 and 2 says, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. So here we have Jesus' thesis statement in which all of the prayer wraps around. He says, glorify me as I glorify you. This idea of honor and lifting up. Bring me, let people see me so that they worship me. And so this is his prayer, because not everyone had seen Jesus as God. Maybe his disciples were barely getting there, and he's asking God that in this next few moments, in the short time he has left, would he be glorified? Would he be exalted? He talks about eternal life in his hands. And then he says this really amazing phrase, this is how Jesus is to be glorified, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That knowing Jesus is glorifying him. We can't glorify him unless we know him. And I feel like the people that have disappointed us, our leaders, our heroes, our closest friends, we get disappointed because we took one step too close. We saw them a little bit more clearly than we wanted to. And some of the assumptions, some of the things that we hoped for, 
some of who we thought they were started to have fractures, and, and we were left disappointed. Sometimes they were a totally different person than we expected, but other times they just didn't hold up the way we thought they were. You know, as we were asking who, who disappointed you the most, or who's uh, someone who has disappointed you, Nina in our children's ministry is like, oh, that would be you, you know? And I was like, I don't want to be in your group. So then I broke up and I could still hear her because she's like two feet away. But I think honestly, like probably the people who've disappointed us the most are the people we got closest to. Um, our parents love us the most, but they disappoint us, right? Our spouses love us, but because we know them so well, they disappoint us. And it's really the people we keep at a distance. It's the celebrities. It's, it's the people on stage. It's the people that we don't really know that we might not be disappointed by, but we get close enough to them and we, saw, we start to see them fracture. But what I find interesting about Jesus' statement is he's saying, the closer you get to me, the more you see me, the more you will not be disappointed. The more you will realize your hopes, the more you will trust me, the more you will worship me, the more you will live for me. That when we take a microscope to the life of our close friends, we see fractures, but when we take a microscope to Jesus, we get on our knees more. We sing louder. We live our life for him with more fervor. This word no goes all the way back to Genesis. They use the same word, the same concept. It says, Adam knew his wife, and then they made babies. So it wasn't this intellectual assent. It wasn't this, like, I know her, like I read a, a profile about her, I read her documentary, or I read, like, Clinton's autobiography that she sent to all her, you know, rivals, and I know Clinton. No, in knowing in the biblical context is intimate. It's experiential. It's stories. I think we need to read the Bible like we read the profile on a dating website. All right, so this is uh, Donna. She was on Coffee Meets Bagel. And um, I asked her for permission, by the way. I didn't just jack her phone, take screenshots, and put it up, uh, which I did before, and people got mad. Anyways, so... I'm like really nosy, and if you have your phone out next to me, I'll start looking over your shoulder blatantly, by the way, like, who are you texting? What you writing? What you doing? So one day I did that with Donna, and she was on Coffee Meets Bagel, and she was like so liberal, right? So I was with like, you know, showing me, so I'm like, we're like rating guys together and commenting on what they wrote, and then she showed me like her texts with them, which was awesome, and you know, I think the way that we would read this profile isn't just informational. I mean, that ultimately isn't our goal, right? It's as we read this, we want to experience with it. We want to experience it in a date. We, want, we don't want this to be words on a page. We want to know why he's a passable chef, and I want to taste some of the food that he makes, right? Is he passable in steak or fish or salads? He says that he has a puppy named Ruka, right? And I want to meet Ruka and play with him. He likes telling stories, and I wonder what are his best stories and adventures, and, and what has he, what, what is his favorite story to tell? 
he's an armchair philosophist, uh, philosopher, and I, I would love to hear um, you know, his thoughts on life and purpose. I think when you read a dating profile, it's not sterile or, or outside of you. It's, it's the longing is I want to experience that with him, right? I want to not just see it. I want to taste his food. I want to watch a deliciously terrible movie, however he defines that, right? I want, I want to um, talk about life with him, or Donna does. And, um, <laughs> and obviously, they're connected. The best thing would be is he, if is he showed up at church one day. Like, I know you. I've seen <laughs> something about... How's the salty foods doing? Um, you know, when I think about reading Scripture, I feel like we need to read it like that. Most of Scripture, 75, 80% of Scripture is narrative. It's stories. It's about how God interacts with us, how people are experiencing Him. Think about how Scripture could have been written. It could have been written like an encyclopedia. It could have been written like a dictionary and just start defining who God is, one word after another, one proposition after another, one argument after another. But no, he doesn't write it like that. Not mostly. He writes stories. And what he's saying is, find out about me, not just in this person's life, but in your life. Read scripture with the anticipation of knowing, not as a mental ascent, but an experience. That's how we glorify God, by knowing him. By saying, man, God, you took Job through some hard times, but you are still with him. And I need that in my life right now. I'm going through a divorce. I'm fighting off a sickness. I'm wrestling with poverty, and I don't just need to know that you comforted Job or that you are a comforter. I need you to comfort me. Man, God, you took David on some wild adventures. He stood against giants. He fought armies. He lived this full life, and, and I want you to do that with me. I want you to give me a life that is adventurous and not mundane. I want to see an overarching story that I am a part of. Man, God, you, you healed people and delivered them of their addictions, of their sins, of their purposelessness. And now I need that in my life. When you say that you know God, is it filled with stories? Because I think that's how you know. I think that's how you know God, the way the Bible wants us to know him. It's not the stories you can tell. It's not the attributes of God that you could spew out. It's the stories in your life that mean something to you. It's hearing the stories of Scripture, finding out who God is, and say, I want to taste your mediocre food. I want to watch deliciously terrible movies with you, and I want an armchair where we could talk about life. Do you read the Bible like that, and do you know God like that? If your filter for what you know about God wasn't informational, but was with stories, that you only know what you have a story about, you only know what you've experienced firsthand, how much do you know about God? How much then would you know about God?
We glorify God. Jesus is asking for glory in that we would know him, in that we would experience him, in that we would have stories with him. And then he kind of highlights these two other facets. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And in the beginning of this text, it says, the hour has come. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and he starts praying. And this idea of hour or this work that Jesus is talking about is the cross. He's speaking about going and dying on the cross for our sins. Displaying his grace, his mercy, his love, his humility to us. We glorify God when we think deeply about the cross, but mostly when we experience its grace in our lives. When we know we've sinned, when we sit with our stains, when we feel the overwhelming sense of guilt, but instead of looking inward, instead of looking at what I can do to make up for it, we look up at the cross and we say, Jesus, let me experience your grace. Forgive me. Give me freedom. Let me stand up straight again because you paid for my sins. That's not something that we just know. That's something that we need to have experienced if we are a Christian. We need to have had come before the cross in tears. We need to have had put down our sins vulnerably and openly before our Savior. And we need to have felt his arm gently wrap around us saying, hey, I'm covering you. I paid for your sins. I love you. That experience of getting up again and knowing I'm forgiven. In one moment, I'm forgiven. It's hard to remember that. I, just the last week, I asked for forgiveness for my sin. And then an hour later, I asked for forgiveness again. And the next day, I felt bad. I said, God, would you forgive me? And then his gentle voice said, I already did. <laughs> Keep walking. That third prayer didn't do much because that first prayer did it all. I forgave you. And when we become a Christian, that's the first way that we worship God. The first act of a Christian is experiencing his forgiveness on the cross. But this worship extends further than us. Um, there's a story that I've never read and I will retell now. So <laughs> there's this there's a, there's a story about, so I'm going to retell it and butcher it, but it'll be mine. So there's these angels who come before God and talk about how, man, God, like, we see the fullness of your glory, right? We see you un, unbridled. The fullness of your glory, we're blown away by it. We're on our hands and feet. We sing holy, holy, holy. It's consuming. There's love. There's passion. It's it's. It's spectacular. It's sublime. But we've never seen your grace and mercy and your humility, right? Because when the angels in their story, in their history, when they rebelled against God, uh, the ones that rebelled was cast away. 
out of the throne room of God with no way to return. And so Jesus gets up from the throne and he says, watch this. And these angels, for however thousands upon thousands of years that they've seen Jesus, the Logos, they've seen him crowned and worshipped and glorified, and now they watch him descend into heaven, take on human flesh, and become a baby in, in the ghettos of the Jewish culture. And he poos, and he goes through puberty, and he walks on dirt. He's not teleporting everywhere very often, you know, like... I, I think if I was an angel, I would be dumbfounded. And then people curse him. And they try to kill him. And he actually leaves a city to run from Herod, his parents first, but then from the, the Jewish leaders later, the God of the universe running. Maybe, maybe the angels witnessed Jesus forming the earth, right? Calling it into being. And now they're watching him run away from humans. And they are like boggled. I've never seen this kind of humility from God. But then he sits with his disciples and then he bends over and he washes their feet. And, and then he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and they're just, they're just spectating what's going to happen next. And then these soldiers come and they beat him and they lash him. And they nail him to a cross. And these angels who meekly ask God about humility and mercy and, and grace are astonished because they see him display it in the most scandalous way that this God would be willing to be nailed to the cross. In Ephesians chapter 3, 9, and, 9 through 11, it, it just kind of makes mention of it. It touches on it. It talks about what Jesus does for the church, bringing him worship past us into the heavenly realms, into the angels that they see, they draw closer they find and experience God in a new way and they're taken back. They worship, they, they write new songs. They sing new praises. They, they get on their knees and, and it's a different scene that they're singing to about. The cross of God brings glory to him. And it's like this, this classroom that Jesus is teaching and exemplifying all of creation. I'm not just, I just don't talk about being humble. I don't just claim to be gracious. Here's me, becoming a man, becoming a servant, being nailed to the cross to forgive sin. We worship God when we think deeply about the cross and when we experience it in our lives. This last section says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. 
I, I don't think we really value our intimacy with God. I don't think we really cherish and hold closely the act Jesus does to come to earth until we can understand just how big he is. Jesus as God. What does that look like? Have you, have you ever been able to just kind of take a step back and say, man, God's really big and I'm just in awe of him? When were those moments in your life where you standing in awe of God wasn't, wasn't something the preacher talked about, but you just kind of stood in awe of him? Hawaii is like one of the most beautiful places I've been to. And I was like thinking of journaling and, and worshiping and like reading my Bible. But the whole time I'm just like, I'm like, I feel stupid. Like I, I have no thoughts. You know, like I'm just like, oh my God, that is amazing. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like Kahlua, um, yeah, just like every part of Hawaii just was breathtaking to me. It was amazing. Ken, he, he came to Epic and someone asked him why if, if humans are, are, like, designed to live on earth, why is the universe so expansive? And Ken said something so profound. He said, you know, I thought about that, and I think it's supposed to make us feel small. As we think about the millions of galaxies out there, the billions of stars, and how we exist in this little plot in the universe, it makes us feel small. And then God knows the hairs on our head. And this God has numbered our days. And this God loves us. We're just going to move into worship. So I'm going to invite the team up. But I want us to just close our eyes for a minute. And... I did this once, you know, I was, I was leading worship on a mission trip, and uh, I closed my eyes, and I just pictured, like, us worshiping together on a Sunday morning in Fullerton, 120 of us, and I think about all the other churches surrounding us worshiping God, but then there's, there's other churches beyond Fullerton, beyond California, you know, in in Africa, cathedrals and homes and fields that have turned into places of worship. In China, business buildings and, and coffee shops and living rooms and floors where people are singing to God. Um, in India and Russia and South America, in all of these languages, we sing to God, and, and that's the picture of the throne room, right? Jesus is at the center, and at the very outer ring is every tribe, tongue, and nation singing and looking and praising and glorifying Jesus with all of their different stories and experiences, with all of what they've seen and have heard. They sing to God, and one rung closer than that are thousands of angels worshiping God, singing and praising Him. And one rung closer are these, these 24 elders sitting on their throne with their crowns, giving them to Jesus, singing to Him. 
And another rung closer than that are these seven spirits and then these four creatures, all these kind of different species of intellectual beings worshiping God, and we're just one rung of that. So today as we sing, we wouldn't, I hope that we would kind of just close our eyes and envision joining this proclamation of glory to our King. We're not starting a song. We're not starting a chorus. We are joining the chorus of all these tongue, tribes, and nations in this moment worshiping the same king. We're joining the chorus of thousands of angels. We're joining these elders, these creatures, these spirits, giving worship to God. We're not just joining in this large context, but we're joining in this large, expansive timeline that this, the first creature that was ever created and given intellect marveled, worshipped God. And throughout the, this timeline, God keeps revealing himself. Another facet of who he is, another aspect of him, and all of creation draws closer as different storylines unfold and we all marvel again. We all get our knee, on our knees in a different way and we all sing a little bit louder and we live with a little bit more purpose. Could we all stand and join in that chorus this morning?